I think the, the, the concept that you can actually bring circulation back to a patient with refractory cardiac arrest just by helping out the left ventricle. I think that's, uh, that was new to me, that, that, it actually, that it actually could work. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is ED ECMO. And do we have a show for you? This is Zach Shiner, and you've heard us talk about ECMO as being the frontier of resuscitation, the bleeding edge, the tip of the spear. But today, Joe and I are actually going to take this even a step further. At the beginning of the podcast, you heard from a physician by the name of Dr. Henrik Vase. Yeah, Zach. Dr. Vase is an interventional cardiologist from the Aarhus University Hospital in Denmark and was the lead author on a paper that was just published in the journal Resuscitation, entitled The Impella CP Device for Acute Mechanical Circulatory Support in Cardiac Arrest. And we're going to get to Henrik in just a second. But before we do, I want to introduce you to someone. This guy has a really difficult to control A flutters, had all kinds of procedures in the past. Nothing's been able to control his rate, and he calls an ambulance and is found to be really tachycardic and hypotensive. That's Janelle Bajulak, a critical care fellow at the University of Washington. And we're going to use this case to springboard into the future of mechanical circulatory support. The first thing he gets is uh, some medication for some rate control. I believe he got some diltiazem, kind of precipitated cardiogenic shock, and then was synchronized cardioversion, which didn't really seem to work, continued to be in a tachycardic rhythm, and then was intubated and whisked away to the cath lab. And in the cath lab, they implant an impella for him for cardiogenic shock. Is that right? Yeah, they uh, took a look at his coronaries that were completely clean, and he had elevated left ventricular filling pressures. So decided to place an impella after also obviously noting that he had severe biventricular failure. So what do you think about that? Is that a good call? Um, I think the tough part is the fact that this this guy has biventricular failure. Um, the impella is going to be able to augment your left ventricular cardiac output simply by entraining blood from the ventricle and ejecting it past the aortic valve. And a patient that doesn't have enough of an ejection fraction to open their aortic valve or barely, this is something that can augment the left side, but it's not going to do anything for the right side. As the same time as they're placing the impella, they're going to be starting inotropic medications. And hopefully that might be enough to help the right ventricle to be able to deliver some preload to left ventricle. And it's really interesting of whether or not to use some kind of mechanical circulatory support in these patients, whether it's an impella or an intraaortic balloon pump. The literature really doesn't seem to know which one or if any is really effective. Yeah, so aortic balloon pumps. We've certainly been down this pathway before with some frustration. Now, impella has been compared with aortic balloon pump uh, with some degree of success, at least if you listen to manufacturers. But the real question is, who do we put these in on? And in left ventricular failure, it can make some sense. You can make a pretty good argument for this. But when you start talking about biventricular failure, the picture is a lot less clear. Now, as far as education goes, there's several different versions of Impella. You have the 2.5 version, suggestive of 2.5 liters per minute. The one that Janelle is using is the CP version, which is supposed to have a maximum flow of 3.5 liters per minute, more like 3.0 in real practice. And then there's a larger Impella that has a 5.0. 
There's also a right ventricular impella, which is relatively new. So back to our patient. We've got a, a guy now that's in the cath lab on impella in still an atrial flutter or how's he looking? So at this point, he's actually converted to normal sinus and has a, a pretty normal rate somewhere in the 90s, I believe. But his uh, his blood pressure is still 70s over 40s. He's still, whenever he gets woken up, he's still neurointact, but they're really not able to maintain adequate cardiac output. And they check on, a, uh, on his swan, his cardiac index is only 0.8. And this is with him being on an impella turned up for flows around... I think they could achieve flows of two and a half before they had trouble with suction alarms. And then he was also on dopamine, norepinephrine, and vasopressin. All right, so let's talk suction alarms. Now, we know in LVADs, the idea of suction alarms, where you have not enough flow going into the left ventricle uh, as far as how much is coming out of the left ventricle, and therefore the sides of the ventricle can collapse on each other, and that's a problem. So in LVADs, it's built in that if they sense a suction alarm, then they lower the RPMs, they lower the amount of flow, and therefore the left ventricle can fill back up. Now that same sort of thing can happen in an impella. If you start sucking out too much flow through the actual impella, then you can get the walls to collapse on each other. Right. The, the impella isn't quite as advanced and, or shall I say, um, smart as the LVAD. It is like the, the world's tiniest LVAD, but it's just a simple impeller device. So it's just going to keep turning kind of on a corkscrew and trying to bring the blood out. It'll alarm and let you know that it's not working and the flows are going down, but it's up to you to actually change the speed and change the um, what they call the P setting from P1 all the way up to, I believe this one can go up to P8 or P9 to change how much blood it's trying to pull out of the left ventricle. Yeah, so when we talk about size here, you're talking about the diameter of a pencil as far as the width, I think, of the 2.5. And the way that this works is they classically use Archimedes screw as their analogous thing where the impella has a rotor inside of it that pulls blood in and then shoots it up through the device across the aortic valve and then back into the proximal aorta. So even a closed aortic valve can still have flow. Yeah, and the, the tough thing about these is they also can cause some problems with hemolysis too, since it really is just a impeller that's just, the screw is just bringing blood all the way across, and this really tiny 14 French is the diameter of the motor across the aortic valve. So that's another thing that you kind of have to watch out for that's a different from the aortic bloom pump. Yeah, and interesting is that the rotational speeds of these, so when we talk about, you know, with ECMO, we talk about speeds in the 3,000 range. In LVADs, you also have some variation as far as how fast they go, as some of the newer HeartMate 3s can go down as far as like 1,500. But with, with Impella, we're talking about like 60,000 rotations a minute. So it, it's spinning very fast, and the hemolysis component of that is certainly one of the considerations. Okay, so the patient gets placed on impella. He's now continues to be in cardiogenic shock. We've got him on pressor support. We've now got a decision, Janelle. What are we going to do? Yeah. So, I mean, it looks like this is a guy who at this point, he only has one organ that's failing. So that's an organ that we can target. And if we do something now, even though our cardiac index is only 0.8, 
we may be able to support his heart and protect his organs. We know this is an inadequate cardiac output for this gentleman's size and what we know that the body actually needs. So we've got to make a move. We've got to do something different. This guy, um, so, the, so the team at the outside hospital decided to give UW a call and talk about all the, the different options for us to, adva- to manage his advanced heart failure. And one of the initial things that came up was thinking, hey, is this, a, is this guy a VA ECMO candidate? I mean, he has near cardiac standstill. He's got an EF of 5%. And this is something that the, the, the current plan that he has maxed out on vasopressors and inotropes and even mechanical circulatory support percutaneous is not doing the trick. So we've got to do something else and kind of upgrade his care. So this is where the question becomes really interesting to me. So is transitioning him to VA ECMO an upgrade of care? So from the Impella device, right, we've now got, the guy's got good lungs. He's got a crappy heart. So if we want to try and augment his flow, the question is, how do we do that? And when we start using the Impella, we're now using antegrade flow. We've got blood that's going through the, the native lungs, out through the, the aortic valve, and going to the carotids into the coronaries. When we transition this to VA ECMO, now we've got completely opposite. We have a, an increased afterload on the heart, and the depending on where the perfusion is coming from, we're either getting the lungs to, to be oxygenating the coronaries or the machine to, to oxygenate the coronaries. And this is the really cool part is because I think that when we end up getting these patients who need to be cannulated for VA ECMO or we're considering it for severe biventricular cardiogenic shock, the problem often becomes, like you said, increased afterload and then retrograde filling of the left ventricle and distension and kind of worsening the insult on that left ventricle. But here we have a patient who actually already has something that many VA ECMO patients need a left ventricular vent. So I guess our options here would be we could continue on on impella, a left ventricular impella. We could even increase the size of his left ventricular impella. We could place a right ventricular impella. We could place a VV ECMO and augment his right-sided flow, or we could place him on VA ECMO. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that this guy needs is biventricular support. And so I guess it would be possible to consider different ways to augment his right ventricle. Because if we're able to deliver maybe 2.5 to 3 liters per minute of left ventricular output or uh, cardiac output from his left ventricle, we're going to need to do improve something to give the left ventricle more preload because clearly we're having suction alarms in a patient who has a low blood pressure and has elevated left uh, left ventricular and diastolic pressure and something's going on where his left ventricle's not seeing preload. So the it, it seems like we either need to, um, well, it seems like we definitely need to augment his right ventricular cardiac output. And probably in addition, though, we're going to have to increase his left ventricular cardiac output because even this Impella CP is probably is not going to be able to deliver the liters per minute that a 52-year-old adult male is actually going to need. So if, if whether or not you're going to place another right ventricular Impella and have tandem Impellas and see whether or not all you're missing is your right ventricular preload to augment your LV uh, output, 
it's hard to say because it's not. I'm not really sure if if you augmented that RV output that that would be enough for you to max out your Impella and you'd still only be able to get three liters per minute. All right, your decision. What are we going to do? Cannulate. <laughs> Giddy up. Because he was going to need something, a temporary bridge in this acute setting. He's not going to be able to sustain a cardiac index of 0.8 for very long before we start to have multi-organ failure. Okay, this guy is clearly bad, and we're trying to look at other ways to do it. But we haven't really talked about is... What are we going to do with this guy? I mean, where are we going to take him? It's pretty easy on a cute MI. Okay, we can fix the coronary. Okay, they got a big P, we can fix that. But this guy, it's really unclear what our exit strategy is. Right. And the really, the really difficult part of this story is that this gentleman is um, actually currently homeless. The, the difficult part is if you don't have access to electricity, where are you going to plug in your VAD? Right. Um, if you don't have sustainable housing, how are we going to be able to shelter you to be able to take care of the heart that you just received in a transplant? So um, homelessness is is a, is a really difficult situation. And um, we want to be able to make sure that if we are initiating something like VA ECMO, that we are thinking, where is this a bridge to? Being off the grid is not good if you want an LVAD. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> nope, you really gotta you gotta have a plug. You gotta have a plug. <laughs> okay, so what happens? Does this guy get put on VA ECMO? So this guy does get put on VA ECMO. Uh-huh. He um, goes to the operating room, relatively controlled settings, because we're able to limp them along with a little bit of cardiac output for him to be able to get cannulated. And it goes pretty well, fairly uneventful, gets stabilized on full support, so he's getting five liters per minute now. And happily, we already have that impella in there. So turn the impella down to maybe about a a 1.5 liters per minute and just keeping that left ventricle nice and decompressed. And we just kind of sit back and we wait and see what happens to his heart. Okay, so we've got a guy. He's been placed on impella. He's now converted to VA ECMO. He is homeless. But uh, and now we've got him on support. So how much time are you giving him? Is his heart going to come back in a day? Is it going to come back in a week? I mean, we've got to have, we, we don't have an exit strategy, but we need to have some sort of plan. Right. So a lot of it has to do with what's the cause of his acute V failure or what we think is acute because it seems like he was riding his bicycle around the city this summer doing really, really well. And a year ago had a normal ejection fraction and otherwise is a pretty healthy guy. So trying to figure out what in the world could this possibly be and Thinking about that, then that gives an idea of how long should we uh, should we wait until we have anticipated recovery. So we, let's take a step back. So you put him on VA ECMO, and what happened to his native EF? So um, when we had him on ECMO, we, our thought behind it was let's give him full flow. Let's just completely take over for his heart and let it rest. We're not going to really continue... Um, you know, moderate doses of inotropes and try to really encourage um, a a significant contribution of his native native cardiac function. We're just going to let it relax. We have the impella in, which is great because often with VA ECMO, with these dilated uh, cardiomyopathies, you'll end up with lots of distension and then it's delayed or impaired left ventricular recovery. 
So we were basically just watching with daily echoes to make sure his LV stayed decompressed. And then we just kind of waited and looked at our A-line just to start seeing if we have pulsatility. So this is great. If this guy, I mean, if this guy survives, this is uh, a fantastic story. Impella is in place. It's venting the left ventricle. You've got maximum VA ECMO in place. And what happens? So if he, if he arrives in our, in our ICU, say we'll call it day one, on day two, we just kind of leave things alone. We just let him kind of cruise full support. We uh, take a look at his heart with an echo and he has an EF still less than 20%. So we just kind of let things recover, let him cruise. On day three, we start to see some pulsatility on the A-line. So we're all a little bit already surprised. Hmm, this is pretty interesting. We also start noticing that his PAO2 on his radial A-line on his right upper extremity starts to go down a little bit. So we start thinking, all right, maybe we're starting to see a little bit of North-South syndrome. This is, this is a really good thing. And of course, also makes us start to look at his lungs to say, is there something going on? Are you having some difficulty with oxygenation? Whenever we're seeing north-south, it's kind of like a, uh, a, a silver lining to a, um, an, uh, a different problem. You have evidence of cardiac recovery, but it looks like you may, may, may be having some, uh, some pulmonary dysfunction. So on day four, we actually decide to go ahead with a wean. So we, we started, we were seeing enough pulsatility on his A-line that we said, let's go ahead and take a look with the echo and let's just try to wean off the ECMO and see what he can do on his own. So um, we take the ECMO flows from four liters per minute all the way down to one liters per minute. And we're doing this, you know, taking him down by a liter and we do it over probably like five minutes where we decrease the RPMs and just kind of gradually take away support. We're looking at a couple of different things. We're looking to see if he maintains the same pulse, the uh, pulse pressure, which is kind of, you know, correlatory to his stroke volume and then main, making sure he can maintain his maps. We're looking at his cardiac index on the swan that we have in place. And then most importantly, we're looking with the trans thoracic echo at his cardiac function. And are you and, still using Impella at this time? Still using Impella. And Impella, so at this point, we're still leaving it at P2. So pretty just 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 acting like a vent. Because the thought is, is that we want to see what his underlying function actually is. The possibilities are that we can take him off with um, maintaining his left ventricular function with the Impella and with inotropy. So at this point, we kind of turned up the dobutamine and added milrinone at this point. Because if we're able to take out the cannulas for ECMO, we can always, if we have some room with his MAP and his cardiac index on lower settings of the impella and low settings of inotropy, then that means that we have some room to be able to really turn up the LV support if we need to. But the main ventricle that we need to pay attention to to see whether or not he can get off of the VA ECMO is that right ventricle. Because this is the you know, the situation that we're in at the very beginning, we have V failure. We're able to support the left ventricle pretty well with the, or decently at least with the impella. But if we're unable to get any right ventricular forward flow with just the inotropes, then we'd have to think about some other things. And 
that's kind of what got us into, or part of the reason that got us into the situation of needing VA ECMO cannulation. Cool. So what happened? So um, on day four, we decannulated him. We, uh, we did, after we did that wean, we saw that he maintained the same map and he had improved EF. It was 30 to 40%, which is amazing. After a near cardiac standstill, only four days ago, this guy recovers an EF that's sustainable pretty much on his own. I mean, he had a little bit of inotropic support in there, but decanulated in the OR, came back to the ICU and was doing really, really well. And ultimately, he got to go home? Uh, quote, unquote. Yeah. So if that was day four, then on day five, kind of stayed the course, gave a little RV afterload reduction with some sildenafil. Day six, able to wean the impella all the way down to P1, then removed it. And then day seven, he was weaned off all his inotropes and then was discharged just a couple of days later. It was really incredible recovery. That is incredible. So, I mean, just causative. What what happened? Is this guy a drinker? Is this a, was this a cardiomyopathy from drinking, or is there something else temporary? I mean, how did his EF come back so quickly? <laughs> you know, I, at this point, we're still not a hundred percent sure what actually happened. And leading diagnosis: tachycardia induced cardiomyopathy. All right, I guess we go with tachycardia induced cardiomyopathy. So, Impella venting of VA ECMO. Is there anybody else out there doing this? Yeah. And and one group um, actually looked at this um, in Germany because they were trying to figure out is, you know, are patients who have VA ECMO, um, who uh, have an impella in place, do they have improved outcomes or not? Um, and whether or not this is this is something that should just be empirically placed every time someone's cannulated with VA ECMO or are we really not seeing an improvement? And um, they had 157 patients, and they they didn't randomize, but they did a propensity matched analysis um, in like a two-to-one ratio. And they noticed, um, and this was basically patients who, re- they all received VA ECMO, and then the study patients also had a concomitant impella, and then the control patients didn't have an impella and they noted that they had an improved or lower hospital mortality in the patients who had an impella in place. Now I know in some of these case series they've noted that distal leg ischemia is problematic with impella uh, just like it is with ECMO. Uh, Is there been any suggestion about putting distal flow catheters down on the extremity that the impella is in? That's a really interesting question and this particular patient we didn't and we um, were fortunate not to have that complication, but um, I could definitely see that happening in a patient, especially even a smaller patient. Even though 14 French is a lot smaller than 20 French, it certainly is a consideration. All right, so there it is. Impella for cardiogenic shock, upgraded to VA ECMO. But I told you we're not done yet. Henrik Vase from Denmark just came out with a great case series from eight patients in cardiac arrest, using impella in cardiac arrest, not for augmentation of left ventricular outflow, but for restoration of spontaneous circulation. I got Henrik on the phone, and here's what he has to say. Yeah, I think, it, I think the, 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 the concept that you can actually bring circulation back to a patient with refractory cardiac arrest just by helping out the left ventricle, I think that's... Um, that was new to me that that it actually that it actually could work uh, that that once you get the coronary perfusion pressure up 
and uh, and you unload the left ventricle, uh, thereby uh, reducing uh, the the afterload of the uh, right ventricle. That you can actually you can also you can actually uh, more or less uh, uh, you break the vicious circle that 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 you that that the patient typically is uh, is caught up in uh, in an arrest situation with with deteriorating. Uh, metabolic status and 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 uh, and a decreasing mechanical activity of the of the heart that you can actually break that vicious cycle by helping out the left ventricle and, and that 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 was new to me and I think that could could present us some <laughs> some degree of of revelation to to also to the medical community that that can act, that that concept can actually work. So Henrik, you and your Danish colleagues were able to do this quite successfully. I mean, this is this is tough stuff, trying to get an impella placed in cardiac arrest, put a catheter across the aortic valve. That's impressive. And they were able to do it in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest as well as in-hospital cardiac arrest. They were able to do it even in a patient that was transported from another hospital in cardiac arrest. And four out of eight of their patients actually survived. So this is this is pretty impressive stuff that they're doing. But I got to ask you, how how difficult is it to place someone on impella in cardiac arrest? I, uh, I I agree, it's it's not that simple. And and let me just start by saying that I'm I'm definitely a, a pro ECMO guy. So I just... uh, wait, did I just hear what I thought I heard, Henrik, VA ECMO fan? I'm definitely a, a pro ECMO guy. Yep. That's what he said. It's not that I, I see the impella as the solution to the general solution to patients with the refractory cardiac arrest, uh, not at all. But in in special circumstances, I believe there is a role for the device, and that is uh, when we have a patient in a cath lab who, not necessarily presented with cardiac arrest, but do so almost when entering the room. That means that we do not have our ECMO team around. And uh, and in that situation, we have uh, if it's a STEMI patient, we have a pretty good uh, idea of uh, what this patient uh, has, uh, what kind of circulatory challenge the patient would have, a primary left ventricular failure uh, predominantly. And in that situation, before the ECMO team can arrive, I mean, I believe that the impella um, may hold some advantages to uh, to restarting the circulation uh, on a particular patient. Uh, because you're right, it, it it isn't. It there is potential difficulties uh, in employing the technique, and you have to have the fluoroscopy around, and and also some some knowledge of uh, of how to uh, retrogradly wire the uh, the aortic valve and and inserting the impeller. So in, in in special conditions, I I, I believe there is a there is a a, a good option for for the impeller device too, that it can indeed help out. So there's a little bit of background just for understanding. In Denmark, they have all cardiac arrests go directly to the cath lab. So Henrik is actually an interventional cardiologist that does a cath on pretty much all cardiac arrests. So their system actually makes sense to have someone there that can immediately place an impella device if they think that they need it. Now, I went on and kind of talked with Henrik about one of my concerns, and that is about complications. Certainly, bleeding is always the complication we think about. But when you're starting to put impella devices up into the proximal aortic and across the aortic valve, you've got to start thinking, is this a problem? Are you going to perforate something? And so I pose this question to Henrik. We uh, we haven't seen uh, any complications of that kind in, in, in our material. Um, but uh, 
obviously, as you also have have mentioned in your editorial, that that um, of the patient that that died, we we do not we, we can't tell for sure what was actually. Uh, uh, we can't rule out that there may have been some injury, not that it's very likely uh, based on on their clinical presentation. But but we haven't seen any any injury to to um, to uh, the left ventricle or the aortic valve or or the ascending or arcus of, of the aorta. Not not in our in our cohort in our cardiogenic shock. A population that we also had in the article, we had a, we had one issue of, of mitral valve uh, perforation, but that was uh, that was a special circumstance, also with a impeller uh, five point zero device, and and not in an arrest uh, patient. So, um, and the fact that the patients are having a arrest when the device is inserted doesn't really. It, um, yeah, it may come as a, as a surprise, but the the the, the aortic valve isn't difficult to pass at all. It, it opens nicely if if the patient is uh, receiving uh, adequate chest compressions uh, and and the heart is uh, filled. So so that that doesn't provide any difficulties at all. There have been several case reports of of inserting the appella in 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 patients with critical aortic stenosis. So. So uh, the retrograde wiring and placement of the impeller in an arrest situation doesn't really give any uh, problems uh, that can be done quite easily. So many interesting physiologic questions uh, with impeller and cardiac arrest, Henrik. Uh, one of them for me is chest compressions. I mean, how do you actually know when to stop? Meaning you may need some augmentation of that right ventricle. You may need to do a little bit of chest compression like we do for an elevated cardiac arrest. How do you know when to stop? Uh, basically, it was uh, how, how much impeller flow that we can achieve uh, and, and the amount of suction. So if we had a situation where you would only get a very modest impeller flow, uh, that would add, obviously be, be inadequate for, for, uh, for the patient's entire circulation. And in that situation, we, we just continued compressions. Um, until we could get the flow up and uh, have some uh, satisfying uh, arterial lines with uh, with a, a mean arterial pressure uh, in the acceptable range. So, um, so they we 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 inserted the impeller and then we tried to optimize its running by uh, by the filling and and by giving obviously also inotropes and and uh, and then we, we we continued compressions until we could get. A situation similar to a return of spontaneous circulation that yeah, we, we that we could get an impeller assisted uh, flow that was uh, sufficient for uh, for uh, for the needs of the particular patient, and that in in several cases took up to uh, thirty minutes until we 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 were in that situation. So let's wrap this up. This episode of the ED ECMO podcast focused on the impeller device. Now, what is an impeller device? We really didn't go through that, and a lot of you are not interventional cardiologists. Most of our listeners are either ED doctors or intensivists. So the impeller device is essentially the world's smallest LVAD. It is an FDA-approved percutaneous ventricular assist device. This is typically placed in the left ventricle, but can be placed in the right. There is a right ventricle variation of this. Now, the impella is placed during cardiac catheterization, whereby a sheath is placed into the typically into the femoral artery, and the device is then placed over a wire up into the left ventricle. 
This miniature VAD sits primarily in the left ventricle and suctions blood out of the left ventricle and delivers it into the aortic arch as the actual pump itself traverses the aortic valve. Now, in this episode, we were able to look at the role that the impella can play in two very different and very extreme situations. Uh, the first case was delivered by Janelle Bajalak. That case was a patient who had severe biventricular failure taken to the cath lab, and had the Impella CP. Remember, that's the one that can produce 3.5 liters per minute of flow. The Impella CP was placed, and despite it, the patient was not able to maintain an adequate blood pressure to perfuse tissues. So with that, they ultimately made the decision to put the patient additionally onto VA ECMO. So this patient was on both VA ECMO and Impella. Now, this is a good story case. The patient actually did quite well and ended up leaving the hospital neurologically intact. A couple of interesting topics that were brought up here. The topic of exit strategy while you're scheming to decide what kind of devices to place into these folks. Uh, you know, a lot of times when we're looking at uh, VA ECMO patients, we're looking at bridging to LVAD or bridging to cath lab or even bridging to recovery. And this is one of those cases where they had a Impella device already in and then added the VA ECMO device with anticipation of a bridge to recovery. And fortunately, that was the outcome for this particular patient. A couple of other interesting topics that came up were the North-South syndrome. Don't have time to go into that right now, but very interesting stuff regarding differential hypoxemia and a topic for another day. Now, an interesting topic that came up here was that almost all of our patients that require prolonged VA ECMO support end up developing hugely elevated left ventricular pressures and they ultimately need some form of a ventricular vent, uh, venting the left ventricle, as they say. And uh, in this case, they were able to actually use the impella that was already in, but use it at a low rate, a low RPM rate to provide a vent for the left ventricle. And that's pretty interesting topic and maybe, you know, a consideration for some of our patients moving forward. Should some of these patients be getting impella devices to vent the left ventricle? Now, the next topic that came up was the concept of using an impella device for refractory cardiac arrest in the cath lab. And this was the discussion with Dr. Henrik Weiss from Denmark. And Dr. Weiss just published an article in the Journal of Resuscitation entitled The Impella CP Device for Acute Mechanical Circulatory Support in Refractory Cardiac Arrest. And an aside, Shiner just wrote an editorial about that in the same journal, Journal Resuscitation. So check that out. Check out the show notes. It'll all be there for you. Now, remember, the use of Impella for refractory cardiac arrest in these cases were all done in the cath lab. Remember that these patients are getting cath, so they've probably already got sheath access to the right groin. As well, they have the wide availability of fluoro, which is, you know, pretty much right over your head. And, uh, you know, Impella device may be an option for cath lab folks, especially if they don't have the ECMO team immediately organized. Now, a couple of concerns for us ED folks. First, remember that the Impella device, uh, in order to place it, you have to have either TEE or fluoro. I know a lot of you are looking at TEE right now, but we're going to have to get awfully good at it to start placing Impella devices in the emergency department. Uh, I think technically, uh, Impella is probably more difficult than VA ECMO. VA ECMO, you really have to get venous and arterial access in the groin, but you don't really, it's technically easier to do that and get rough placement of the ECMO cannulas than it would be to adequately place the Impella catheter. 
Next, remember that if you place the percutaneous devices, the 2.5 or the CP version, um, you know, the maximum flow you're going to get out of that is 3.5 liters per minute, and that's not going to fully support somebody who needs full support. So again, from a patient who arrests in the emergency department might not be the absolute best choice. Lastly, remember that the Impella device does not have an oxygenator. So you're putting the patient on an LVAD. You're not putting them on heart-lung bypass, which is what we're doing in the ER to bridge them to the intervention that they would need to fix the problem that caused the arrest. So ultimately, I don't really see a role for the Impella device in the emergency department, but don't take it from me. Take it from Dr. Vase. I think for for the unselected patient with refractory cardiac arrest that you yet that you decide is, is a candidate for for mechanical support i i believe nothing beats the ecmo if if you have it around and and it's uh, and it's uh, and if you have a good team the bottom line is this if you're in the cath lab and you're an interventional cardiologist and you want to use impella for refractory cardiac arrest knock yourself out but if you're an ed doc with limited resources no fluoroscopy, no TEE, and no interventional cardiologist standing next to you, cannulate the patient, put them on VA ECMO, and move along. I do see a role for Impella, but that's going to be more on the back end, on the backdoor side of things, improving anti-grade flow uh, to decompress the left ventricle. Maybe use it as a temporary VAD as you are weaning the patient from VA ECMO. And then also, you know, there's this whole concept of venting the ventricle. And we have other devices that do that, but maybe there's a role for Impella in this situation. Well, that wraps it up. Another episode of the ED ECMO podcast. This was the Impella episode. Thanks. Thanks so much to our guests, Janelle Bajalak and Henrik Vase from Denmark. On behalf of Zach Shiner, this is Joe Belezzo for the EDECMA podcast saying, late. <laughs>